Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. My name is Nicholas Underwood. This episode was recorded at the Air University booth at the Air Force Association Air and Space Conference, where we had the unique opportunity to sit down with several of the top airmen involved in the development of the Agile Combat Employment concept. Please join us as we discuss why it's enablers, multi-capable airmen, tailable force packages, and the Mission Command philosophy are so vital to its success. My first guest is Colonel Troy Pierce. Colonel Pierce is currently the commander of the 715th Air Mobility Operations Group at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson, Alaska. He recently vacated his position as the Agile Combat Employment Capability Development Team Leader within Air Force Futures. During this time, he created an educational war game called Kingfish Ace, which is centered around a hypothetical crisis in the Indo-Pacific and designed to introduce players from the E3 to the O6 level to the complexities associated with the Ace concept. Colonel Pierce, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a great opportunity. My next guest is Dr. Sandeep Frag Mulgan. Dr. Mulgan is a senior advisor to the Deputy Chief of Staff for Headquarters Air Force Operations, where he leads efforts to support the evolution of air component approaches to planning, execution, and assessment to address the challenges of the future operating environment. His areas of focus include command and control, operations in the information environment, and agile combat employment. Dr. Mulgan has a PhD in mechanical and aerospace engineering from Princeton and a BASC in engineering science from the University of Toronto. Frag, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to come talk to you about ACE. My final guest is Colonel Charles CFR Redmond. Colonel Redmond is the advisor to the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff for Special Operations Forces and Personal Recovery Aviation. He is also the A3 Lead Action Officer in coordinating the enterprise-wide efforts to operate the Agile Combat Employment Schema Maneuver. In this role, he and his team authored and published the ACE Training and Certification Frago and the XAB Training and Certification Task Board. Currently, he leads the A5 Futures ACE Capability and Infrastructure Investment Team. CFR, thank you for joining us. Hey, Badger, I appreciate you bringing us all together. Excited about this event. Gentlemen, this is a very exciting opportunity for me to learn more about ACE, especially as a doctrine writer. So I, I really appreciate you being here. All right, gentlemen, so the doctrinal grounding of what we're going to talk about is right out of the ACE doctrine note. And in that doctrine note, we identified that there was three enablers. It's uh, multi-capable airmen, mission command, and tailable force packages. Chief Brown just recently released the 1-1 mission command, which provides further clarity on the doctrinal precepts of that. And then MCA, we've seen uh, Chief Cells up at uh, uh, half, as well as uh, many others working on that. So these pieces are coming out, but they're not necessarily glued together. So I'm hoping we could get into that a little bit today. Frag, can you give us kind of a the breakdown of what is ACE, where does that come from, what problem is it solving, and, and how has this evolved? Yeah, that, so that's a good way to frame it. So let's, let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, what do we mean when we say agile combat employment? Because there's a number of different interpretations of, of that term. And then what's motivating it? You know, what, what's the why behind it? What's the, what's the, the rationale for thinking about generating air power uh, this way? So first of all, what is ACE? So ACE is what we call a scheme of maneuver. It is a way of arranging and arraying our forces to provide advantage, to make, put them in a position where they can best enable what the JFAC needs them to do, uh, to uh, signal something to an adversary, to signal a combat credible capability to somebody who might threaten our interests, and it's to put them in locations where they might be most survivable against incoming threats. There's two parts to ACE. One is something we call proactive maneuver. The other part is what we call reactive maneuver. Uh, proactive is about getting ahead of a crisis. It's about putting forces where they can be most effective. 
Reactive, uh, as the word might imply, is about responding to a threat. It's about getting out of harm's way. And, and the idea of dispersing forces to get out of harm's way is, is a pretty old one. It's, it's as old as warfare itself. So, okay, why are we doing this? What is the motivation behind getting after this idea of ACE? Because there is a recognition that, that it's going to present a, a, a quite a bit of challenges to us in terms of how we generate air power. There's a couple of things. We have far fewer basing options now than we did, say, during the height of World War II. The numbers have shrunk quite a bit, as, as the doctrine note captures, in terms of, of the number of bases that we have overseas. So that kind of constrains the locations from which we can generate air power. The second piece of it is that our bases are no longer sanctuaries. We have to contend with a wide range of threats. At the high end of it, as we've been talking about at AFA this week, there are the, the sort of uh, uh, larger and, and more capable missile threats. But at the other end of it, we also have to worry about things like drone swarms, cyber attacks, space attacks, a, a whole variety of things that basically challenge our ability to generate air power from what we have tr traditionally thought of as our sanctuary main bases. And so the idea with ACE then is to have more options. Uh, for the locations from which you generate air power uh, by being, ab being able to basically lift and shift, move from location to location as required so that you can continue to fulfill uh, air tasking order requirements. And as you said, there's a variety of things that make ACE possible that we're going to talk about. Yeah, Frag, I think you uh, obviously you nailed it. Of course, you must have written something about this for a while. Uh, <laughs> a, couple, I, a couple of things. Yeah. You know, I think it's good also to, to kind of articulate like what ACE is not, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, so we have established processes over time to be really efficient. But ACE isn't necessarily about efficiency, it's about combat effectiveness. And so we, we may be conducting activities that may seem like they're outside of the norm of, of efficient processes, uh, but, but really is to provide that uh, effectiveness, combat effectiveness over time, right? Uh, another thing it is, is that we always like to, to focus our, our capabilities on a single airfield as it is today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna establish a capability to, to launch from a certain airfield instead, ACE is more about how do I maintain that combat effectiveness over a cluster area or a region, right? So you may have uh, one capability, one location, uh, and another and another, as long as you have the collective capability over time, that's what you're, you're really getting at. And then some other things I think uh, what ACE is not is uh, something that you can just do just in time training. I can't take a a CBT or, you know, even just read the doctrine note and expect to be able to execute that very proficiently with a large joint force uh, type of maneuver. And so the ability to then figure out how to exercise and employ these activities on a day-to-day -day basis is really what we need to, to execute this complex scheme of maneuver. I'd like to ask a quick question on the, on that. You mentioned signaling capability of ACE. And, and so I've, I've worked with some of the lessons learned guys, and they talk about a lot of the units trying to do this talk about the inefficiencies and they're saying there's no real need right now to take these inefficiencies. But when you mention signaling, uh, it seems to be something there. So by doing these now, even in exercise, we're, we're setting some kind of signal. Is, do I have that correct? Absolutely right. So there, and there's a couple of aspects of that signaling. First of all, we are signaling to our allies and, and partners that we are one with them, that, that uh, we are working together to address common challenges. The other side of it, signaling to our adversaries, is to show that because we are interoperable with our allies and partners, because we can generate air power from many different locations, for them to be able to counter our ability to generate air power is going to be very difficult and very expensive. It's not just going to be about attacking America in Guam, for example. It could be about having to attack many different locations, many different sovereign nations, to be able to counter our ability to generate air power, and that becomes strategically ex expensive. 
And so a big part of what we're doing with ACE is to show that this is something you don't want to deal with. And, and so that's part of what's going to happen with what we're getting after with ACE is to think about the messaging aspect of it. How do we communicate this effectively to show that this is something that uh, is, is uh, sort of demonstrating our resolve and our interoperability with our allies and partners and also to be able to counter anything that an adversary might want to try to do. And to be the doctor nerd here, I'll say that that takes our ace and says this applies across the full spectrum of our, uh, excuse me, a full competition continuum, as opposed to just thinking right of bang or just in conflict. Uh, ace has application across that spectrum, and that's uh, uh, that's interesting. As we're talking about this, I think it's important to emphasize that ace has to do with the entirety of the air force. It's not just about our combat air forces, our fighter jets. It's also our bomber forces. It's also our special operations forces. It's also our uh, mobility forces, and it's also other enablers that we have. Aside just from the, the, the enabler aspects, and I think there's a lot of lessons learned from enablers that are used to being on the kind of penumbra and periphery of, of kind of the, the major operations, and then how they've had to do their own forward projection, that there's a lot of lessons that we can t we take from this. But that goes back to just the uh, why now question. You can't just do the CBT as, as, as Troy pointed out. We need to adjust the culture of the Air Force to understand and build to this high-end readiness and capability so that when we do intermingle and bring all these together, it goes off without a hitch to an extent. There's, there's going to be fog and friction. We all understand that. But you can't just, oh, crap, now we're under attack. Let's, let's, let's try and, and, and put this scheme of maneuver into play. And I think as we go do that and as we keep producing more and more guidance and more doctrinal lessons, I think uh, pulling from those enablers, the MSTs, you can see a lot of that being put into some of the the, the force presentation uh, conversations that are occurring now, you can see a lot of that in the XAB as far as how they're designed and putting in those mixed teams uh, and then those enablers that would normally be outside of supporting fighter operations are now internal and then therefore our leaders need to know how to properly leverage and use those forces effectively. 14 August, Chief Brown signed the newest doctrine, uh, one tech one on mission command. And if I could paraphrase him a little bit, he said, we can have mission command without ACE, but we cannot have ACE without mission command. And so I wanted to pull apart, why is Mission Command so important to ACE? Yeah, I'll take this one. I think as we continue to place airmen in a highly dynamic uh, environment, and especially potentially one that's uh, contested, you have to get our airmen comfortable with operating with less than precise guidance and information. And so as you're, you know, what Mission Command really envisions, right, is that you are empowering commanders at the lowest echelon possible to be creative and solve solutions, to have this mindset that I need to solve a problem that I have that no one else is coming to, to come to the rescue for. And so that is, you know, instilling this mission command is what's really enabling us to solve the problems that we know will happen as we're executing agile combat employment, right? The getting the, the right thing at the right place at the right time is extremely complex. We're not gonna be perfect about it. So how do we ensure that our airmen can execute with whatever they have, with the decisions that they're making to kind of enable that? When we look at that doctrine, there's kind of two pieces to it. One is about talking about the philosophy of leadership. Your mission command is all about delegating responsibilities down to the lowest capable level, recognizing that the airman on the scene is the one who is best able to make a dynamic decision when missiles are flying or a threat is inbound or whatever it, it might be. So there's very much that aspect of, of the philosophy of leadership that Mission Command gets after. The other part of it is what's expressed in the Doctrine publication as a centralized command, distributed control, and decentralized execution. So centralized command recognizing is, is recognizing that 
there's one commander at any given level, and that's the person who's establishing commander's intent, establishing what it is forces are expected to accomplish. Distributed control is very, very closely tied to ACE from a conceptual and doctrinal foundation. It's to recognize that there's, when it comes to actually executing on that commander's intent, we have to delegate decision-making downwards. We have to be able to adapt to the situation as it's evolving, the way Troy was describing, and figure out what we've got to do based on what we have available to us. Decentralized execution has always been a fundamental air power tenet, and it continues to be when it comes to actually executing the mission. So there's a fair bit that that doctrine is trying to express when it comes to the type of leadership and command and control that we think we're going to need when it comes to conducting ACE. I think when you guys are talking about powering the airmen and you're taking the ACE is, is really empowering the team to recognize who needs to take lead. You know, as a, as a patch, right, we, we say tack lead. Who needs to take tack lead in the situation and recognize that there's a, a gap here in, in authorities and, and I need to make a decision to keep the mission moving. And, and that may not be the flight commander. That may not be a squadron commander. That may be the, the fuels troop that is leading the turning of this jet to get it back in the air. And they need to think through those problems and they need to execute mission command. So I, I just want to make sure that we make it clear that this is, it's at every airman, every echelon. And, and the situation dictates who's going to be stepping up to take action. Yeah, it, I mean, it is a kind of a cultural shift, right? You're, you're giving people permission to make decisions. Right? And sometimes you just don't get that sense that I have, I've been empowered to give some sort of uh, decision and, and act on that, right? And so I think that it takes some time for us to figure out how that continues to work. As a commander, what I've been trying to instill is how do I take this mission command, mission type orders? What does that mean to me, right? And the how, do, how do my airmen ingest that type of information and indoctrinate that into their, their daily communication style? So, you know, one of the first, first 45 days of command, I, I was like, okay, well, here's what I think uh, a mission order looks like in my perspective. And then how do I pass that down and, uh, and then have a conversation about what that is? You know, but at the end of the day, our airmen oftentimes working on the flight line don't even read email. You know, they have a shift supervisor, they get their tasks, they work through the shift, and then they go home. And so how do you start so that your flight line airmen can communicate in that five-paragraph mission order very briefly, provide some mission intent, here's my left and right, here's how I define success, here's how I define failure, uh, and here are the things that I need to do to, to, to kind of get after that. So another aspect of this is, you know, if you look at all the, the things that we've put into uh, strategy and doctrine over the last couple of years, is the recognition that in a fight against a peer actor, we have the, the reasonable expectation that what they're going to try to do is target our command and control first, basically degrade or disrupt our ability to communicate with one another. And so that's one of the key uh, ideas with mission command is to recognize that that's probably going to happen. And so therefore, airmen need to be effective even when they cannot communicate with the air operations center. So how do you do that? How do you make sure that they can communicate? It's exactly what Troy talked about, of, of empowerment, of making sure that they understand what the commander expects and that they're, they've got the tools to be able to get the job done even when those comms are disrupted. But that goes back to the, the, the cultural change that we're having, having happen in the Air Force right now. Because everything that we just said is now increased risk upon commanders and is not something that's been previously reward it in the Air Force, right? When we're looking at what makes you a good commander or a good leader, we have these very quantifiable objectives as opposed to recognizing the individual with the discipline initiative that is risk aware versus risk averse and making those decisions and in training, sometimes failing, that's okay, but learning as opposed to the one that shies away from that and falls back on uh, metrics. Yeah, and it, it's hard to test in a non-contested environment too, right? Uh, when I have communications, 
it's probably a good idea that I keep my upper echelon commanders informed on what's going on. It's easy to say, I've empowered my team and my airmen to execute this. But at the end of the day, I still owe information and communication up because our upper echelons are making decisions and they need to be informed on those. So I think it's, you need to make deliberate attempts to identify when you're going to exercise that mission command, you know, inform your, your leadership and everybody else that you are going to, you know, employ these types of things with specific objectives in mind. And it's not going to be perfect, but at least you're having that organizational buy-in day to day, even though we're not in an uncontested environment. Because like you said, like, like we've said, I can't just turn the switch and right. expect our uh, us to be able to communicate in a, in a different fashion if we haven't tried it a thousand times over. Right, and the last time you want to try to figure it out is in a crisis. That's right. I want to pull one string real quick. You guys have all talked about continuing that communication. We talk about when to step up, when not to step. It seems there's a fluid nature to the authority inside of mission command. So I, I thought maybe we could pull on that string a little bit. Yeah, so we also have to recognize that there's always going to be a tension between centralization and decentralization. There's always going to be certain kinds of missions, uh, for example, uh, highly sensitive cyberspace operations, nuclear operations, high value target types of things where a certain amount of centralization will be necessary to manage risk, to manage strategic risk, to manage consequences for the nation as a whole. There will be others where far more decentralization is appropriate. So you're absolutely right, Badger, that, that it's going to be fluid, it's going to be situational dependent, and coming back to what Troy said, it's going to be something that we have to practice hundreds and hundreds of times so that there is that trust on both sides of, of a relationship. One of the things that, uh, that General Brown, our chief, has emphasized in the doctrine is that this, this whole idea of commander's intent and delegation and empowerment and everything else, it's a two-way conversation. It's not just the boss giving the subordinate a piece of paper that says, go do. It's a conversation to uh, make sure that the subordinate understands what are we trying to accomplish, what are the left and right bounds, if you will, and what am I supposed to do if things don't go right, because we should expect that they're not going to go right. Yeah, and that, I mean, that, that trust comes about with the shared understanding of the situation. And, and the more we communicate that when we have the chance, the, the better. You know, and some of that is how do you develop maybe condition-based authorities? And you have the negotiation on what that condition-based authority is when you have the time to do it. Uh, not, you know, well, n now what do I do? Uh, right. I, you know, I'm, I'm stuck. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, I think we had a great example, exercise mobility guardian with uh, Air Mobility Command. But prior to execution, General Minahan had, here's my conditions-based authorities based on these types of scenarios, right? So we have some clear intent, some flexibility to, to figure out what those conditions are uh, and then leverage the authority we need to when, when we had to do that. But yeah, every single day we should be thinking about what those conditions are what, and, and that, that back and forth to establish the trust that we're looking for. And, and we need to be careful that we don't still cling to that these are the condition-based authorities, these are what, what can be fluid, and since it's not on the list, it's not on my checklist, I can't act, right? That's right. It, you need to be comfortably uncomfortable and knowing what risk you're taking. Again, expressing that up, understanding when is the appropriate time that the airman or the individual needs to act, the commander needs to act at their level without further guidance, and what they do after that fact to, to keep the, everyone else informed. And also, you know, maybe there's going to be a couple times, hopefully in training, that they step over their bounds again Use it as a learning opportunity. Don't crush that that individual that's trying to execute mission command. Just 
give them that better left and right guide, rail, guide rails as far as how they need to move. Troy, I think, oh, excuse me, uh, CFR, I think you, you framed it a very effective way. So uh, one of the things that's happened this week at the Air Force Association Conference is that we, the United States Air Force, have actually signed an agreement with the Royal Air Force to develop better interoperability between our two services when it comes to agile combat employment. Now, the Air and Space Forces Commander at the Royal Air Force, uh, Air Marshal Air, uh, Harv Smith, has said this about this, about uh, how he views ACE and Mission Command and all the rest of it, uh, kind of picking up on something that CFR said. He said, uh, our folks need to become uh, more comfortable with being uncomfortable, basically to recognize that it, it's going to be fluid, it's going to be dynamic, and it's going to make airmen feel uncomfortable. And that's just going to be the reality of it. And the way we get after that is what Troy said, to practice it as many times as we possibly can. A gentleman like, go ahead and move us to the next piece, which is a multi-capable airman. I've stopped a lot of airmen, and my results are mixed. I've asked them directly, what is multi-capable airmen for? And they said to do more with less. They didn't know what else it was for. So obviously a lot of work for us is uh, doctrine outreach to get out there of what this is for, but I thought maybe you could connect the MCA and ACE together, why this is absolutely pivotal. Yeah, whether by design or happenstance, whether that's because we have disaggregated our force or we just happen to have a plan that didn't work out. There will be a period of time in which airmen don't have the resources they need or the specialties they need to complete the mission that they have, and we won't have time to get them the, the resources they need. So inherently, we need them to be unleashed with the idea that they can solve their problems by themselves. And if you do that, you tap into the, the passion of our airmen, and I've seen it multiple times uh, just within the last few months, that people want to be empowered to solve problems that are outside their, their, their specialty, and they absolutely can. And they will, they will find ways to, to get after what they have to do to, to make that happen. You know, in essence, multi-capable airmen is nothing, number one, just giving people permission to solve problems that are outside their specialty, that may not be codified in a technical order or, you know, a specific AFI. You know, I, I think that's, that's number one. If you, if, you, if you tap into that passion problem solving, then they're going to do that. I think there's another aspect of it, too. That, I mean, it's not more with less because, because we want to do more with less. Uh, there is more with less but it's more about how we're organizing ourselves to be cross-functional and to do things, uh, to be more resilient. Uh, in the, if for some reason one of our specialties happens to... I'm just going to... The, the more with less, uh, I, I think it's just... It's a, it's a buzz phrase. It's the too cool for school phrase. It goes back to your earlier discussion about ACE isn't necessarily uh, efficient. So, no, we're going to give you more resources. We're going to give you more training. We're going to give you more opportunities to, to develop these teams and build you those teams of teams. A4Gen helps with that, right? They have the high-end capability. So you may be asked to do more at times, but you're really not. We're putting you on teams, and we're going to highlight your expertise, leverage your expertise, and then we need you to know how to lead and when to follow and be multi-capable airmen to make it work. And we, as leadership and as the Air Force, owe you the training, owe you the risk mitigation measures to make sure that you're equipped and that's going to cost the Air Force more money, literally, and it's going to cost us more time. So I, I, would, I would think this is actually a, a better way to get an airmen and showing airmen that we are putting our little money where our mouth is the, to get them the resources they need to make them capable, as opposed to what it has been in the past, which is we'll just tack this on and you get no extra training associated with it. Good luck. So, let, you know, I think we can also talk about MCA from a, uh, a complementary lens to what CFR and Troy just described. So to be agile is to be light on one's feet. It's to be responsive to a situation. 
it is very difficult to be agile with a gigantic team where everybody has one individual job and they don't do anything else because there's somebody else who does that particular job. You can't really be agile with that if you have to take an enormous team to some tiny little operating location to go generate air power. So one of the, the motivations for MCA to give people cross-functional training to uh, make them competent at a wide range of things is to make it possible to generate air power in such a way that we are putting fewer people in harm's way. So that's one of the motivations uh, behind MCA. Another piece of it is that if we are thinking about a peer fight, and this is something that was discussed in some of the AFA sessions today, is that we have to be prepared for the reality of higher rates of attrition in generating air power than has been the case in what the Air Force and the Joint Force have been doing for the past 20 years. And so if that were to come to pass, General Brown has said repeatedly he wants airmen to be prepared to be able to confront that kind of a situation, and that requires training, as CFR was describing, so that airmen are ready to take on whatever is going to come at them in that kind of an environment so that they are best prepared to take it on and continue to generate air power. And so it's not about doing more with less, it's about being effective with, with, uh, with lightweight teams that can get the job done. Absolutely. There's a couple of questions I've been asking young uh, airmen and, and some of our chiefs in regards to mission command that we've been handing out today, and they talk a lot about it's a two-way street in terms of that empowerment and getting folks to step out of their comfort zone. You as a commander can empower them, but a lot of times they don't willingly accept that responsibility for fear of making that mistake. And so it's a two-way street. And I don't know if I, that inspires anything you guys wanted to add to that, but that is certainly a, is something that's been new to me here. Coming back to something that Troy said earlier, a great place to uh, get comfortable with that discomfort mm -hmm. is in an exercise to understand, okay, well, how would I do this if the boss weren't around? How would I do this if it's on me, a tech sergeant, to make a decision that is typically being made by a chief master sergeant or whatever the scenario might be? That's, I think, what our training events have to drive us towards is to confront those kinds of situations and practice that empowerment, practice that delegation of getting somebody who is uh, typically not making those decisions uh, sort of put into a situation where they understand commander's intent, they've had that uh, to, uh, back and forth dialogue, and now it's on them to figure out what to do when they're the only person who can make the decision and take action and continue to generate air power the way that the CFAC requires. And I think it's incumbent upon leaders too, to, uh, how you respond to, to people taking initiatives, stepping out, and then potentially failing. Right? Your, your initial response to that is critical in how how we continue to, to keep that and foster that culture that, that we're looking for, right? If you you stepped out, I made a mistake, and next thing you know, I'm getting paperwork and I'm shoved off to the side, that's not what we want to do, right? It's you made a mistake, oh cool, what'd you learn from it? How would we do this differently? Awesome, let's share that, let's scale that lesson and let's get after the next time. I think that's a key thing, right? Is those mistakes, right? So anyone in the Air Force is familiar with debriefs, you, you don't focus on all the stuff you did right, Right, you, you go back and you pull that lesson learned. And then, you know, we talked earlier about having, knowing what authorities we're going to delegate in certain circumstances and all that kind of stuff. Th that's where those come from, is experiencing that. And so, like you said, taking it and, and kind of rewarding the initiative. Now let's fix it and then let's we have this lesson moving forward or maybe we've got this new example that we can add to our CCIRs and whatever it needs to be to, to make us more effective in the future. And I think there's certain institutions that, that do that well, and then there's other cultural uh, barriers that we probably yeah, need to come 
overcome as an Air Force to, to make that happen. Yeah, and, and it's, it comes back to what you talked about earlier, Badger, this whole idea of disciplined initiative. You know, what is that about? It's about seizing opportunities that are consistent with commander's intent. It's looking at what's happening right now in my operating environment. What do I know the boss wants me to do? What can I do? What should I do? And let me go do it. And, and I think that's what we have to, we have to promote that kind of a mindset of saying, you know, don't wait for, don't wait for the guidance, mm -hmm. go do it. I remember the AFSOC, uh, as we were developing the doctrine, the AFSOC uh, sent in a guide and it talked a great deal about uh, how well somebody will take initiative next time is how well uh, leadership deals with their mistake on their first initiative. Right. Uh, and I remember my, an evaluator who I had a great deal of respect for flew with me and uh, I made a couple mistakes and in the debrief. He said, the evaluation didn't actually start until you made your first mistake. And then I watched how you recovered from that. Yeah. That's it, right? It's, yeah. it's you know, when you're, you're, you're a weapons officer and we kind of look at the same thing. The aha moment mm -hmm. is not that you identify that there's a, a lesson learned that needs to come out of this. Like, what, what is the lesson we're going to have to? It's the instructional fix. Right. And that's when you start to really see that, that leadership potential and, and understand that they, the individuals got it. They're understanding what, what is meant by mission command. Uh, we'll go ahead and shift to the next subject here. I, I think what's very interesting is the majority of what we talked about here is entirely a human element, right? Uh, there's a big push, a lot of tech technology, and certainly technology is important to what we're doing. But most of what we're talking about here with ACE is the uh, between the years, a lot of personal development, cultural changes of the way in which we do things. But there's also this uh, another piece that's organizational that we talk about as the ACE enablers, which is this tailorable force packages. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that organizational piece how that changes, uh, because changing an organization, especially the way things look, there's a lot of resistance to that. And so how, what are the barriers we're looking in terms of building that? And then maybe just start with kind of what does that look like and, and how are you facing those barriers? I think when we talk about ACE capable force packaging, I, I think it still kind of falls in, in mission command as far as, you know, planners and commanders looking at the problem set, what are we being asked to do? How do we want, how do we want to set this up and how do we want to array uh, the, those forces to be able to do all the stuff that we've discussed for the past you know, half hour about acting? They have the tools and they have the, the training necessary to, to act. We need to break some sacred cows, some of the old ways as far as the way we are. Slaughter, slaughter some sacred slaughter, cows. Slaughter, organizationally yeah. aligned, it doesn't work. I, I feel that we've become so task segregated as a force. We. It's not even that we, we don't want to work together with, with each other. We don't, we don't know how we can't work together with each other. So we've got to reintegrate the mission sets, reintegrate the airmen, put commanders in charge of not just what they've done their entire career, but put commanders in charge of airmen and these force packages and force elements that are supposed to go do a mission. Uh, and then, so now we're building small teams, your UIC, your TCs, into larger force elements, and then attaching said force elements together with a larger apparatus which plugs into the operational uh, mission execution. That needs to go into effect years ago. All right, so we're behind. We're putting guidance out now that says this is how we, we think about it. I think one of the best things we talked about was certification. And I was like, well, what's certification mean? We put out guidance on what ACE training and certification is and that people can go and read. And, it, and like you said, it's not really about widgets and things and be able to the, uh, put things. It's, it's what you're looking for as far as objectives and how you want to act. And then the, the next thing is the time, we got to build in the time, so we got to protect these ace-capable force packages to actually train up to this capability. And that's where A4Gen comes in place, where we can now express our true capacity as an Air Force and then build in the time necessary for these team of teams to build up that capability for ace-capable force packaging. 
Yeah, I'll share a, a kind of a quick story. You know, I'm, I'm coming from a contingency response background uh, from within Air Mobility Command. We were we are organized, trained, equipped to be this cross-functional team in order to respond within 12 hours uh, in case uh, of a crisis and, and everything else. And you know, at the origin of that story was we need a capability. And what we did was we took UTCs capabilities that existed within the Air Force, and we said, okay, I, I think I need port. Well, I'm going to put a port-specific UTC in this. Uh, in this in, in this squadron, and this will be part of the same thing. Okay, I need a communications package. All right, I'll get the, the, the standard communication package, and I'll put it with uh, CR, right? So you merge all those together, and if you put all those together without taking anything apart, we'll just use hypothetical numbers here. Say it'll take me 12 C-17s to load my entire force package if I took it as is, right? So anytime we would get a tasking, you know, I would we would get it. All right, guys, it's time to go. Cool. So you're going to give me 10 C-17, 12 C-17s to, to get? No, you have two. Cool. All right. Guys, take the UTCs off the shelf. Let's start tearing through the boxes and figure out what we need, what we don't need, put it together in a consolidated package, uh, and that's what makes it on the plane, right? So we talk about, you know, tailorable force packages. We could probably do a little bit of that without uh, ahead of time uh, <laughs> and figure out what, what those are, but then it's how do I merge the best capabilities from my comm, my port, my maintenance, my C2, fighter generation, all of that into a force package that is not too heavy or too big to lift and, uh, it, and, and throw out there into an expeditionary environment. And so that, that in my mind is always how we get after that ACE capable force packaging is take the best, take what we need, don't take what we don't need. Uh, and then and then move on out. Yeah, and, and I think a key part of that is also to recognize it doesn't it shouldn't be too big, but it also shouldn't be too small. Right. Uh, if we're going to take say a squadron of aircraft, hypothetically, let's say it's you know 24 airplanes, right? And we're going to send break them up into four six shifts to go someplace. Well, you don't want to have only one wrench for that entire 24 aircraft. You're going to need four wrenches, and so that math has to be part of how we do that force packaging, how we do the, that analysis of, of what it means to be ACE capable is to recognize that each of those broken up dispersed units needs to have the necessary gear to be able to then go someplace and generate air power. And so there's, there's going to be some work that we have to do, some analysis and, and uh, calculations and, and, uh, and budgeting, you know, coming back to what CFR was saying about uh, it being expensive to determine what will each of those units need to be effective. And if you're really smart, you don't put all four wrenches in the same aircraft. <laughs> ideally, <laughs> ideally. Yeah, I find it interesting. Uh, a lot of this, uh, you know, discussion we, we we talk about becoming less efficient. We don't need to worry about efficiency, but uh, a great deal of the tailable force packages it seems to be more about being both efficient and effective. And a lot of the ways we've been deploying in the past, uh, coming out of SOCOM, AFSOC. Uh, the deploy for purpose, all of that, uh, with the, the comprehensive review done a few years ago, we realized we, we needed to really focus on why we were going down there and actually becoming more efficient and effective at the exact same time. Um, easy to say, difficult to do. Uh, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. What I'd like to do at the end here, you all have very unique experiences and backgrounds in this and different lenses. And I'd like to kind of give you an opportunity. If I'm an airman, I'm listening uh, of any rank and I want to, I'm helping to realize uh, ACE either from my position in staff, my position uh, flying the line, turning the wrenches, or my position in command. What are the thoughts that you would like them to be thinking about as they go forward? I think the key word is active. Actively seek in your understanding of what mission command, multi-capable airmen, and agile common employment mean. 
it's again, it's not something that you can just passively read uh, and and expect to fully understand that. And there's a lot of tools that are out there, and I think you should seek those out, whether that's a educational war games or homegrown tabletop exercises or you know things like listening to you, you know the deciphering doctrine uh <laughs> series right where you're, you're you're actively engaging your brain in, in ways that how does this translate to me how's it going to translate to my leadership as i lead airmen uh you know and don't just just don't flip through the you, you know the whatever social media site and, and become cynical about what you're what you're seeing like actively think about it and then figure out a way that if you identify a problem how do you solve it because we need we need some creative creative solutions to a lot of these complex problems. So I think eventually we are going to get to the point where we do have ACE checklists, you know, where, where we actually do say, okay, before we go out and disperse proactively or, or reactively, we are going to have to go through some, some set of things that we got to uh, get done before we, uh, we, we execute that maneuver. But I think right now we are in a stage where we are all learning by doing. The discovered learning is a phrase that, that often gets used for that. And I think the thing that I would emphasize is that with all the guidance that's out there, with the, the doctrine note, the various orders that have come out of headquarters, Air Force, and out of the, our major commands, view them all as a North Star. View them as an aspiration for what we want to try to get after and pick the thing that you think you can do next and put it into your next exercise. You don't have to do all 15 or 20 of the things that, that the doctrine might call for, but you can pick two or three that might resonate with you as an airman from the point of view of, say, command and control or force protection or intelligence or whatever your specialty is and make it part of that next event. And there'll be a lot of learning that happens that, that will then contribute to a, the subsequent event that you'll build on it uh, and just sort of use it as an opportunity to learn and grow and help the Air Force point in the right direction for all this. So, so everyone's already kind of said the, the stuff I would say. So I'll, I'll just try and, and sum it up in, in low-level helicopter speak, but read act, and then reach out. So read, right? So uh, you mentioned how, how do these things, they, they seem separate, MCA, Mission Command, uh, uh, ACE, they seem separate. But the, literally we write into the doctrine references and say like, go to this document for more to learn more. Go to that document and learn more, right? Even in some of the orders that we've put out, we've literally said, you can't understand this document unless you've, you've read this document. So read. And then not just read the stuff that's coming out here, Read the joint pubs, right? We're in mission command, start in the army, right? Get, do that exploratory learning, and then obviously just do your your, your historical classical. That's the Prussian reading. army, to be precise. Exactly, right? Go all the way back, right? And go go even. You, if you, I'm not going to make you read Thucydides, but you can you can do what you want. <laughs> but read, act, right? So the next thing, so now you've got knowledge. Now do something with that knowledge. Go act. Go take that discipline initiative, right? Form your boss what you're doing, right? I'm, I'm looking at a commander as I say this. Make sure the boss knows what you're doing, so he's willing to accept the risk, or she's willing to accept the risk. And then go try things out. And if it's successful, reach out. Because I guarantee you there's a whole bunch of other people working on a similar problem. Hey, I run an LOE 6-4-A, that is uh, investment in capabilities and infrastructure. So reach out to me. I'm on a global, charles.redmond.usaf.mil. And tell me what you're doing, and I will link you up with other people doing ACE efforts. And we can move the, the process along faster. We can get you those resources so you're doing more with more. And, and we can make the Air Force uh, uh, ready for ACE faster. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here. I think this can be very helpful to airmen. So thank you very much. Again, thanks for having me, and especially having me with such a fine, fine gentleman here. There's a lot of passionate uh, airmen out there trying to uh, advance all these initiatives, and uh, I just feel like I'm part of a team really trying to trying to work that out. So thanks for having me.
Yes, I, I, let me piggyback on something that, that, that Troy said. It really is a global team that's trying to get after it. it. It's all corners of the Air Force, as I said earlier, our, our fighter forces, our bomber forces, our helicopter forces, our, our special operations forces. They're scattered throughout the world, and none of us have the full answer for race. We all see a little piece of it, and we're going to get there by, by pooling those insights the way CFR was describing, and I'm excited to be a part of it. This was a great event. Thanks for setting it up, and uh, excited to hear the, the, the response out there. That's going to do it for this week's podcast. The show is recorded, edited, and produced by the LeMay Center's Doctrine Outreach Section. Special thanks to our panel members, the LeMay Center, Air University, and Headquarters Air Force. As always, the views expressed by our panel members and hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. All Doctrine discussed can be found at doctrine.af.mil. I'm Nicholas Underwood, and we'll see you next time.